0: We love supporting and promoting the creators of musical theater throughout the world, and we would love to have your support as well. Go to musicaltheaterradio.com and click on the Become a Patron button because a supportive community is a strong community. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Be Our Guest here on Musical Theatre Radio. I am your host, as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. Our next guest today uh, has such an incredible backstory. Uh, He lived the rock and roll life, played keyboards for some of the biggest names in the world, and always turned it up to 11 when he was on stage. Um, And now, He's joined the musical theatre world. I can't wait to uh, talk to him about his life and his passion and everything else. This is composer and lyricist of the musical Voice of a Generation, John Sinclair. John, welcome to the show. How are you, John Paul? Good to see your voice, mate. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on today. uh, And and reaching out uh, in the first place via Twitter to uh, introduce yourself.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all new to me. I'm, I'm, I'm getting on a bit. I'm 67 now. I'm <laughs> born. But, you know, um, you know, everybody says, well, this is how it's done now. So, you know, I kind of had to just dive in at the deep end and go for it. It's more complicated than I thought. <laughs> but, but, you know, when I found MTR, you know, I, I thought, well, this is the place where I need to be. Because, to be honest, I mean, I was just, you know, I was floundering in that world, you know, being sort of an old an old chap in his autumn years, you know, trying to find my way through all that, through all that sort of absolute myriad of sort of possibilities. You know, the biggest thing of all is whether or not I kind of, like, aim at rock and roll. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously we'll talk more about this, Jean-Paul, but the yeah. thing is, it is, a, it is a, we've described it as a genre-bending musical because it, it is a sort of definitely a rock, and, a rock musical, but it's definitely a musical, mm-hmm. and there seems to be a kind of a there seems to be a kind of a divide between the two camps. I mean, not necessarily hostile, but yeah. nevertheless, from my point of view, we, which way do I go? There's um, <laughs> probably a stigma, I'd say, about you know amongst rock fans about musicals. Yeah. But then, you know, if you're talking to rock fans about musicals like Glee and Frozen mm-hmm. and and so forth. There probably is a stigma, and likewise, there's probably a stigma a stigma amongst the sort of musicals cognoscente about rock music, because they probably really don't like Guns N' Roses and Motorhead, and that's just the way it is. It's just, a, you know, they're just apples and oranges. So yeah. for me to know where to target, whether to kind of like aim at the rock, aim at the rock area, and trying to convince them to listen to a musical <laughs> or whether to sort of f- focus on the musical area and convince them that, you know, I've got something that is rock music, yeah. but check it out. It was hard to know. Um, and, you know, when I got a reply from you and a, and a kind of a follow from you, John Paul, I just thought this is probably the best thing I could possibly find. <laughs> and this was after weeks and weeks of really sort of the dilemma of which way do I go? Yeah because he's not he's he's really a rock musical but it is definitely a musical i mean it's inspired by it's inspired by both Guns N' Roses and Andrew Lloyd Webber so (laughs) where do you
0: start exactly you know um, exactly so so let's, let's carry on sorry mate no no worries no worries well let's let's take it back and and i always ask my first question which is give us your 30 second bio so in 30 seconds I know 30 seconds. <laughs> Tell us who Johnson Claire is. 30
1: seconds. <laughs> About 60 years ago. Yeah, okay. So my dad, my dad bought a piano, um, and he was too drunk to play it. But uh, my mum was a model, her fingernails were too long. <laughs> this was the 1950s, and unfortunately, I was I was next in line and I got stuck with playing it, and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> I was five years old and my music teacher, my music teacher was just scary. I was five years old. The Flintstones had just started on TV, and I'd rather be watching that. And to be honest, I mean, the first... In those days, you didn't get to play the piano. You didn't get to touch the keyboard for three months. What? It was, it was, it was just purely theory. So if you're a like your kid and you're looking at dots, and all you want to do is bang out some awful tune and try and impress the locals. And of course, you don't get the opportunity. So literally, literally, I mean, the first tune... Funnily enough, ironically, the first tune... I learned to play was the Bluebells of Scotland, or the first I tried to learn to play, and that was in 1958. And I'm still not sure I can play it yet, but I'm working on it. But um, no, that was it. From there, I was about 11, I joined a reggae band. When I was fairly young, for some reason, I wound up in a rock band, and it was funny because I was a rock fan, but I was also a classical fan, um, because of my sort of background in classical piano. And so I was always on this kind of hybrid, I always had this hybrid approach. and So everything I touched in rock music tended to sort of lean towards theatre anyway. You know, I'd start to get probably at times over-orchestral and over-melodic, you know, um, and so on. But in terms of history, I joined a band. uh, Everything that I did in my career, I can attribute to one phone call. And I've said this to people a number of times, Jean-Paul, you know, if, if it's a, you're looking at the phone number, dial it, just do it. Because mm-hmm. I wound up playing to sort of, I don't know how many it was, maybe half a million people, something silly, in Rio with Aussie, And it all came down to one phone call that I made when I was about, I don't know, 18. And it was literally an advert in the paper that said, keyboard player required for rock band. So I thought, shall I... Maybe now, and in the end, I did it. And I joined this band. They supported this punk band called the Heavy Metal Kids. The Heavy Metal Kids supported a band called Uriah Heep. Um, Uriah Heep. Um, through Uriah Heep, I got to know a hell of a lot of people. Two of the musicians in Uriah Heep were from the original Ozzy Osbourne band, so I wound up with Ozzy Osbourne, um, and it all started with that one phone call. And that's one of the funny—I always think—I wonder what would have happened if I hadn't made that phone call. <laughs> wonder where I'd have wound up. But nevertheless, you can directly correlate. So, in—I don't know—that's probably more than my thirty seconds of uh, thirty seconds of fame. But even so, that's kind of it. One thing just led to another. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I sort of ended up in the sort of like the very harder end of rock music, obviously, Mm -hmm. the heavy metal thing. Um, And it was never really intentional. It was just one band after another. It was one gig after another. It was one job after another. And that's where I finished off. And so I wound up up sort of on the road for, I don't know, 40-odd years, you know, with, um, and you know, it's a great, it's great, because it, you know, you can't really argue with the life, because I mean, you know, how else do you get to, I mean, it's a cliche, I mean, it's an old cliche, Jean-Paul, but how else do you get to sort of like, you know, get paid to go to places like Tokyo, and sort of, you know, and do sort of the Budokan for 10 nights, and <laughs> hang out, and go sightseeing, and buy stuff, and then go to places like Indonesia, and, and you know, Malaysia, and, you know, Australia a number of times. And all the time you're working. Yeah. You really can't argue with that, you know, uh, in terms of lifestyle. It's tiring. I mean, it's, you know, it can it can be stressful because it's pretty full on. But, you know, that's pretty much it. And basically in 2003, I got to 50 and I was just exhausted. Um, and so my wife and I moved up to the Scottish Highlands really to kind of chill, you know, <laughs> Um, And we did, we did, it's a very laid back lifestyle. It's a lovely place to live, Um, but of course I got itchy again and started wanting to do something. And I was kind of happy for a few years, just living the rural lifestyle. And I thought, you know, I don't know, I can't just sort of like sit here and wait for God. Uh, I'm I'm getting up there now, I'm in my autumn years. Uh, So literally I thought, you know, there's, there's you know, there's, a, you know there's at least one more thing in me that I really want to do. Um, and that's where it all started, really. Is that my 30 seconds of fame?
0: It was 38, but I'll take it. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: that's it, really. I mean, it was just yeah. one thing led to another. I mean, lived, uh, spent a lot of time in Los Angeles in the 70s, and ended up doing wow. the infamous Spinal Tap. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, which, I mean, there's some funny stories attached to that, which you know we probably haven't got the time for. But, you know, they, these things just canon. You know, if you're in the studio with one person, somebody else says, you know, there's a... I mean, literally, the Spinal Tap, if you're familiar with the parody, Spinal Tap, mm-hmm. which is an incredible parody of the rock and roll business or a rock and roll band. Yeah. It literally arrived from I was doing a session in Los Angeles. And the drummer, I think, from the band called The Babies, I was in a session for The Babies, and he said, look, he said, there's a guy, somebody in Beverly Hills is making a movie about a a British rock band. And I knew nothing about them. So I went along and did the audition, and they kept their accents. And I didn't realize I were known American comedians, (laughs) and they kept the accents up for a week. Um... And do I have to curb my language? I suppose I do, do I?
0: Not on this show. This show is, oh. it's its raw, it's theater, it's rock and roll, it's well, whatever it's, goes, okay. goes.
1: Basically, I went into rehearsals every day for a week and these guys are teaching me songs like Sex Farm and uh, sort of, <laughs> I don't know, Big Bottom, Stonehenge and all this stuff. And I'm going home and I was saying, and I needed the money, I was broke. I mean, yeah. had a young son and I was going home to my wife and my ex-wife and i say, you know what, I've done some bullshit in my time. I can't believe what this band are doing. But I'm turning up every day and smiling through this stuff, not realizing, it. and nobody's told me it's a parody. Wow. So I'm turning up, I'm turning up sort of like doing my best and trying to sort of, and after a week, I walked into rehearsals and they dropped their American accent, yeah. English accent. And they'd all become Americans. Said, what's going on? And then they sat me down and they said, well, Do you understand what's going on here? This is actually a parody. It's not, it's not for real. <laughs> I thought, thank God for that. So from there, I said, Why did you do it? They said, two reasons. I said, really, I think the, the impression I got was they wanted to see if I saw through it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I could tell they were kind of fake, London accents. And the other thing is they just wanted to fuck me, with me for a week. <laughs> you know, to, just for fun, because they were all in on the joke and I wasn't. But uh, once again, you know, those things, you know, over over that period of time being in the business, you're bound to collect these, you know, you're bound to collect sort of a lifelong. I've been asked a few times, people said, but, you know, with your experiences and playing with Aussie for 17 years and so forth, you know, I should write a book. I mean, not necessarily about, I don't know, the obvious, you know, yeah. the obvious interest is the Osbournes and so forth. I mean, it's not to write a book about them. Most of those stories are told, you know, yeah. he's told them his stories. Um, so, but it's more really there's just sort of journey, you know, my my personal journey. You know, it's a cliche, I guess, again, but my personal journey through the rock and roll business, drugs and alcohol, kicking drugs and alcohol, and finally, you know, full circle would be a voice of a generation were to actually sort of, you know, were to actually emerge mm-hmm. and become something significant that really would draw a line under that whole, that whole, my whole, well, my life really from 1958 yeah. it would be just full circle, you know?
0: Um, well, well, I think what you, you said right at the beginning is it's probably one of the most important things people should take away. Uh, just make that phone call. Don't be afraid because I'll be honest, sometimes I, I'm, not a, I'm not a very outgoing person. I'm a very shy and introverted person. Uh, no one believes it, but it's true. And, and every time I even, when I'm on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever, social media, trying to, should I, my, I always ask myself, should I talk to this person? Should I contact them? Um, you know, would they want to talk to me? And then sometimes you just got to go, screw it, fuck it, let's do it. Yeah. And, and you did it, and look where it took you. Yeah, but well, it's just, yes, it, that was it. I mean, I can, I can remember that moment
1: to this day, Jean-Paul. I was sitting there looking in the Melody Maker at this ad, and I didn't know who the band was. I and mean, it was actually a, a, a sort of club band in London, but they were connected, and we supported a band called Status Quo, who I don't think are so big in the States and Canada, but mm-hmm. are, you know, a big, you know, they're kind of an institution in the UK, you know, they're, you know, a big rock and roll band. Anyway, we supported them. I got to know them, did an album with them, got to know more people, and it all stemmed from joining this little rock band. And there was just a phone number, and mm-hmm. I sat there and pondered. You know, yeah. and I thought, oh, I don't know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I Probably won't like it. You know, probably be this, probably be that. I probably yeah. probably ain't good enough. I don't know. You know, all the things that go through the mind. Uh, but you know, nevertheless, I did it, and it was only really probably forty years later I realised that. <laughs> Whole thing was, you know, interconnected with that first phone call. And I made
0: and I nearly didn't make it. Yeah, And you know, and, like who knows what your life would have been like if just a single phone call. Right? Yeah, Where no. would? You, well, let's you know, let's actually think about that. Where what would you have done if you hadn't made the phone call? What would you do? What was your trajectory? Do you think in your, in your life at that point? I don't know. You know, I I mean, I was
1: fifteen. And I had one yeah. job was an apprentice sign writer, which was like writing names on the side of vans. I was quite good at art at school, so mm-hmm. I got a job doing posters and signs and shit like that. Um, and I literally, for a 50-hour working yeah. week, my, my, my um, wage was about, uh, I took home about $5.
0: Mm.
1: And that's when you realise you're fucking old. <laughs> <laughs> 50 hours, literally. About three pound sixty, which equates to about five five bucks for fifty wow. hour a week of making the tea. So that's how long ago it <laughs> You know, you realise, you gee, you know, I really am getting up there. But no, I don't know where it would have got. I don't know where. I don't think I'd have been a sign writer. Yeah. Uh, but um, in the sign writing shop, funnily enough, I remember being fifteen years old and listening to what I was listening to, Tommy, by the uh, Her- Yeah. We had an old record player, an old beat-up record player in the sign shop, and I'm sitting there making posters uh, for five bucks a week, <laughs> and I'm, I'm listening to Pinball Wizard and listening to the Acid Queen, yeah. and loving the idea that you could take sort of even then at 15 years old, loving this idea that you could sort of take a sort of bunch of songs, and they weren't just three minute, they weren't just sort of three minute sort of pieces or three minute statements. They kind of tied together into a kind of movie, a mo- I'm quoting Miss Saigon, mm-hmm. but a kind of movie in your mind, if you like, yes. as you're listening, you're picturing this, this conti- cont- continuity of an hour of the first act yeah. that sort of unfolds, but you know, as opposed to a three minute unit or a three minute piece of music, which runs out as a start, uh, you know, a verse, a pre-chorus, mm-hmm. a chorus, a solo. How do we end it? That's it, three and a half minutes, you know. Yes. And this idea of sort of like this bigger piece and this bigger picture just became sort of, uh, probably ingrained in me at that point. Although, and so in that sense, Tommy, Tommy when I was 15 was a major influence. I always, wasn't even conscious. It just sort of embedded, embedded into my psyche that yeah. I loved the idea of, sort of telling a story. Um <laughs> And it wasn't really until I got the time to do it. You know, it wasn't really until I like, had the time and the space. Um, living up in the Highlands by Loch Ness, I've got a studio yeah. at home. I've got a, the schoolroom has got a concert grand and, a, and drums and stuff. So you know, I've got all the time in the world. I'm essentially yeah. retired, and I just thought, gee, you know, I can use this time. You know, there's always stuff to do. You know, with the dogs and. And so keeping the place warm, <laughs> it's just stuff like that. I mean, it's cold. <laughs> um, but you know, it's just some something else. I really wanted to sort of. I knew it was in me. Um, I knew there was something I really wanted to do. Um, and when I started listening to all the getting these cassettes out mm-hmm. and kind of logging all these ideas that went back maybe forty years, you know, to the seventies or whenever, and I thought, you know, Jesus, you know. It's not just an idea you know I've really got the raw material of something really 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 impressive and something that would really draw a line under everything I've ever done um, and that was it and it became compulsive after that I was just hooked um, <laughs> and I could tell you i you know so I carry on tell you how it started with Lynn with Lynn Anderson
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, basically I I saw a um, I thought about me, a musical for you know most of my life, I guess. But you know, I think being a musician, I think I'd fallen into a trap to a certain extent of thinking it was about the music. You know, I'd be listening to the tune first. So if I heard fan, if I heard "Music of the Night" from Phantom, I love the great soaring tune. I love the dum 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 dum. I'm not really too worried about the words, not really too worried about the story mm-hmm. because I'm a musician. Yeah. And so, first and foremost, you know, I always thought, well, you know, the music is what it's all about and the story of the the story within the musical can catch up, however, so it's kind of secondary. And I watched a documentary with Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber, the man himself, and he just said, a lot of musicians do that. He said, a lot of musicians think that musicals are about the music. He said, I'm a musical composer. He said, and I can tell you here and now I've seen some great musicals, he said, with sort of like amazing music and sort of like kind of average stories. He said, go straight down the tubes. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he said, I've seen stories that are incredible. He said, the music is good. He said, and those have run. He said, it's about the story. Yep. Um, and I didn't, you know, it was an eye-opener for me because this was coming from Andrew himself, you know, the man, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, you know. And I thought, well, if he says that. And then I heard the same thing, I think, from Cameron Mackintosh, not personally, but, I mean, through yes. interviews on TV and stuff. And that impressed itself upon me. And I thought, well, I'm a musician and I write music, but I'm not a storyteller. I'm not a story writer. So the idea... It's kind of presumptuous to think that I can I can sort of fill that area. And so I kind of bluffed my way into the UK Authors Society <laughs> I contacted them and I said, Can I join them? They said, are you an author? And I said, No. I said, but I'm looking, I'm looking for one. Mm. And so I joined. I said, Well, and they looked at my track record, I suppose, and guess and said, Yeah, okay, you can join. I guess, you know. And I just wanted to I said, "I just want to use your notice board and if that's okay, and they were really helpful. And so I posted a a thing on the UK Authors Society notice board uh, with a bit about my background. And Lynn Lynn Anderson, who's a well-known crime writer, a very well-known crime writer, uh, certainly certainly over here, um, just got straight in touch and said, what are you up to? And I played her some stuff. And from then on, we just absolutely clicked. That was about five years ago. And we wrote in tandem, which, uh, from what I understand, is a good way to write. So, in mm-hmm. other words, it wasn't the story wasn't sort of written in stone, and then I put the music to it. We constantly kind of it was a constant dance between next, 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 next. So the story would nudge along, the music would catch up, and the story would nudge along, the music would catch up. And I think that shows you can take there's a kind of a there's a kind of a spirit about something that sort of, you know, evolved, uh, whether, you know, the music and the story have evolved together, you know, something happens. I don't know what happens. It sort of, it, you know, once again, you know, I think it's a, it's probably a known cliche, but I mean, it really does take over and begin to write itself, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and that was it. And we just, you know, we just sort of ploughed into it. She's very busy. I mean, she's not more active than me because she's a very successful sort of author, very successful author. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's always travelling, um, workshops and book signings and, and so forth. I have more time. But then she lives, spends quite a bit of time in the south of France. Um, and she lives between Scotland and the south of France. And so when she was home, when she was up here in Scotland, we get together and just move on the next bit and I'd catch up and send her what I'd done. And, you know, it was just a great, great collaboration, you know, and it was really, yeah. and it's, you know, it worked, it worked all along. I was never, I was surprised how well it worked, you know, I could honestly say it's, you know, all I all I really set out to do, um, if I'm totally honest, Jean-Paul, I just wanted to be able to get to the end and say, that's you know, kind of my career in music on the table. And I cannot top that yeah. rather than sort of spend the rest of my life talking about what I could have done and how I, I, wish, I wish I'd kind of got to it and so forth. I really did knuckle down and, and I did actually do that. I actually was able after five years to put it on the table and say to myself, you know what, I can't beat that. I can't beat that. That's you know, you know, whatever the world, whatever the world thinks of it, is what it is. But I can't beat that. And it was an amazing. That was amazingly cathartic to be out at that moment. And so <laughs> it was kind of a success at that point. It was already successful for me because that's what I set out to do. Well, since then, since then, there's been quite a reaction to it. We've had um, um, uh, it's, it's centered around. Her story is set in 1975, New York. Um, Sorry about that. That's an email coming through. That's
0: okay. It's set in
1: 1975, New York, and it's centered amongst the sort of guys that came back from Vietnam. Um, It's not about Vietnam. Um, It's about the guys and how they were treated and how they felt and, you know, uh, the situation they found themselves in when they came back. But essentially, it's a love story. set set within that community but it's very gritty it's 1975 new york which you know not a it wasn't a good time certainly um you know uh, so it lends itself to this incredible you know the fact that it's a love story and the fact that lynn created this you know a classic sort of a love story in the classic sense but within this really gritty dirty environment you know that kind of sums up sums up the the hybrid you know that I don't know how can I put it that kind of sums up the hybrid that it is between rock and roll and and sort of like very orchestral classic music theater which it is you know there there are you could listen to two songs from voice of a generation and find it hard to believe that you were listening to the same show or the same project you know because there's times when it's absolutely slamming and there's times when it's just so lush and so orchestral. And, I, and the reason I did that is not to be clever or for effect, it's because I love both. Yeah. You know, I, so first and foremost, I wanted to write what I would, what I would go and see, you know, what I, what would appeal
0: to me. Well, today, th- Anything goes like look at Hamilton is huge, and, and the diversity within musical theater of the sound is incredible. Like you mentioned, we have Tommy, and then there was Hair and, and Jesus Christ Superstar. So there is a tradition of rock music within uh, the musical theater world. And then, if you move forward, you had Rent in the 90s, and then uh, the musical rock of ages from about what 10 years ago, when they just took all the hair bands from the <laughs> 80s and created. I love that musical. Have you seen that? I have seen it, and I think
1: it was really I, th- I thought it was really good, but I still think there's a, you know, I'd still say, from for me personally, there's a disconnect between jukebox musicals yes. and a completely original sort of like, you know, in other words, I mean, if you take, I mean, probably was Mamma Mia the first big jukebox musical? Am I right
0: in thinking that? Yeah, somewhere in there, yeah. And, you
1: know, I think *Mamma I Mia* mean, was incredible. It's, what's also incredible is I didn't realise it's an established story. <laughs> even more incredible because yeah. you know it, it fitted so well. It didn't sound like it didn't sound as though the songs had been shoehorned into a yeah. an existing story. It sounded like they coexisted quite happily together. You know, throughout eternity. You know, mm-hmm. and it was written as such, but it wasn't. It was the greatest hits of ever, um, yeah. and that started, seemed to start a trend of oh, sort of you know that led to sort of things like we Will rock you uh, obviously buddy yeah and but you know still obviously I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not gonna sort of like lean towards a jukebox music, but no. musical because I've always been a always been a writer. So first and foremost my satisfaction comes from writing new <laughs> material. So there'll be no satisfaction in taking an established catalog, <laughs> you know, for me. Yes. So I've got no prejudice against pop musicals, but obviously I wanted to, you know, I wanted to sort of establish a sort of, uh, you know, a new, you know, a new, a new ground, you know, some, you know, uh, establish. And I don't know that there've been that many sort of like original rock musicals. and I don't know why that is. Maybe you can answer that. Why? I mean, there's a sort of disconnect between the sort of the appreciation of rock music and the appreciation of, musical
0: theater. Um, There might be, well, like you mentioned, I think, I think we were talking off air. I can't remember uh, how um, rock people don't necessarily go into the musical theater world. And, and it's the same way in the musical theater. People uh, don't necessarily listen to guns and roses and and motorhead and things like that. Now, I I personally, I love both of those. I love motorhead. I love uh, guns and roses, but I also love, um, you know the traditional learner and low, and the uh, Rogers and Hammerstein and things like that. Um, I think there's just maybe there's just a fear to admit that you love both of them, which I think, like with Hamilton and all that, it's changing. Every every genre is starting to mix into each other. You see it on TV more. You see it in the movies more, and, and you hear it there's a blend of sounds so i think we're moving in the right direction and i think this is a good perfect time for voice of a generation to to come out because
1: i hope, I hope so john ball i mean maybe hamilton you know maybe hamilton was a bit of an icebreaker there because as you say you know suddenly it made it okay to say yeah mm-hmm. i love hip hop but i also love musical theater yeah. whereas at one time there was probably a, a similar disconnect between the fan base of each genre you right. know the musicals fans and then there was a sort of like a, a gap, and then there was hip hop fans. And all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden somebody came along and sort of like, and closed that gap, where it was okay to like both, you know? And where it could probably, the, the significance is, that can you imagine if somebody, it was obviously groundbreaking. Um, to be honest, I haven't seen Hamilton, um, but I've mean, heard a lot about it, obviously. Um, but it's obviously groundbreaking because if you think about it, whenever you take a, a piece of work, if somebody else did a hip-hop, a hip-hop musical now, what would it be compared to?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the instant comparison would be Hamilton. Yep. So, In other words, that tells you that Hamilton did something that, that hadn't really been done before, um, just by definition, um, because, you know, whereas it seemed, you know, and so somebody broke the mold with Hamilton, and I guess in a, to a certain extent that's what I've tried to do with Voice of a Generation because I mean it is no holds barred rock mm-hmm. music. It's not it's not a homogenized kind of like homogenized version of rock music for musical theater fans that won't be too loud and too offensive. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a full on rock show. Yeah, you know it's, you know the the, the 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 you know the thinking behind Voice of a Generation is that it would be like going to see Van Halen or going to see (laughs) Nick Zet. And it would just have just as big lighting and it would be like, have all the excitement of a rock show. Um, But at the same time, it incorporates sort of all my influences of my background in melody and so forth. You know, in the old days, some of the greatest, you know, some of the greatest, I mean, some of the greatest songs. I mean, I I love Rodgers and Hammerstein. You know, I love West Side Story, I just think Maria, and somewhere sort of like among the greatest songs in history, you know, I love those. I mean, just, you know, just pure, the pure melody of those songs. So, you know, I become an addict from that angle, but at the same time, I've got an established background in rock music. So obviously, that, obviously that sort of influence, you know, that life influence is going to become very paramount. It's going to look and smell like a rock show. For sure. And it kind of does. It's set up that way. You know, you come out thinking, did I just watch a musical? (laughs) Did I just go and watch it? And people have heard it, it, interestingly, have said, what would be fun, what would be really interesting is to see if you couldn't get a slot on a sort of like a major rock festival that was actually not a band at all. It wasn't an act. It was an expert
0: from Voice of a Generation. Yeah it and and that could easily work nowadays because um you know like we mentioned people are accepting it more of a crossover of genres and as long as the sound as long as it's good that's all that matters i think to people music's music uh, whatever type of music it is
1: sure 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 i i agree i mean you know they're you know it 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 started off as a. It really has been a labor of love for both Lynn Anderson and I uh, to do this over five years. And my first, you know, my first objective was to be able, as I said, was to be able to sit down and say personally, I've been involved in a lot of stuff, but I just, you know, cannot beat that. Mm -hmm. And I, I did say that. And I've kind of since I finished it, I haven't really done anything else because at this point, I've got much more to say. Yeah. I know for a fact if voice of a generation was to click and it took off. I mean, I, you know, I'd be, I'd be, you know, one hundred percent. You know, I've got to sort of see if I can do it again. I'm sixty-seven, but I've got to see if I can do <laughs> another and follow it up. But at this point, you know, I really was able to draw a line under my whole musical career and say, you know, I can't. You know, I, at this point, I've got no more I can say. Yeah. And if it doesn't hit, it, you know, if it doesn't hit. If it doesn't hit, you know, just to know why mm-hmm. will be valuable. You know, that will be invaluable. That will be almost as invaluable as the sort of like, you know, the knowledge that something you've done is going to become part, a major part of your, your legacy, you know, mm-hmm. when when I shuffle off, you know.
0: And, and uh, some, I, I, I,
1: Sorry, can't yeah. carry on.
0: No, I was going to say that I've I've listened to so many new or lesser known musicals on on the station because that's that's the one thing we promote here, um, and and it's not that they're bad. It's sometimes it's just the timing of them, or they just haven't been able to find their the, their audience, and and that and that's the unfortunate part. You know, you've written this this wonderful piece. It could be the best thing in the world, but. It's just timing-wise or who's heard it and that sort of thing. So um, just to give you a heads up, you know, as you know, it might not hit right away, um, but you never know. And, and you just keep plugging away at it. So well, it that's, good on you for creating this.
1: Well, this, you know, it's been, it's been sort of like fantastic fun. I mean, it's just, you yeah. know, it was an incredibly hard work. I mean, but they, they are, I mean, anybody, you know, there's a book by, you probably heard of Julian Walford. You he really. He's written a really good book about sort of like what it means. He, he, actually said He said, you know, one of your options, one of your strongest options, is just give up <laughs> and bother yeah. go there because you know to do to actually pull it off uh, that length. I mean, in music terms alone, it's sung through as well, so it's not. It's not. It doesn't break down to dialogue. And for me personally, and I, you know, anybody who hears this interview may be able to relate to this or not. I believe, and this is my my belief,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, that one of the problems that people may have with musical theatre or people who are are biased against musical theatre is because they struggle with the concept of sort of people that sing to each other and then speak to each other (laughs) and then go back to singing to each other. In fact, Monty Python made a joke out of that where the piano starts playing in the background and I think, I can't remember the context, John Paul. but the other, the other character says, you're not going into a song while I'm here. And the piano sort of ties away in the background. <laughs> and it's that, if you think about it, to involve somebody involve somebody fully in a story, you know, we don't sing to each other normally. Mm-hmm. And so once you establish that dynamic that some people are going to sing to each other, well, then they stop and go back to all we know mm-hmm. of talking to each other and you kind of have to make a shift.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Do, you understand? Do, you, do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? You have to make a shift uh, in, in the way you're actually absorbing this material, and then they start to sing again. Yeah. And then yeah. it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, an emotional shock because you don't normally start singing to each other. And so my logic was that once you've established within the first couple of minutes that people are never going to speak to each other, yeah. then I'm actually more comfortable with that because I've kind of accepted that and I can now go for two hours with the full acceptance. It's never going to be the normal world. People yep. are genuinely going to sing to each other. Yep. And now what have we got? What's the story all about? But you can kind of put that aside. And so I find that that, for me, it's a personal thing, or maybe there's other people that can relate to that. I much prefer the idea of, you know, something that's sung through. I think Les Mis is sung through, isn't it? Yes. I mean, so you never stop, you know, you don't suddenly go into... It's very hard to take, say, an angry confrontation um, between, for me anyway, between two people when they were just singing at each other. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You know, I struggle to sort of, I struggle to kind of make that shift. So, you know, that was the idea of keeping it as a sung through um, a song through a musical. Another aspect probably where it may be different and it may, may be revealing the fact that it was written by somebody from a rock background is there is, there is much less. There is actually much less being said. Um, and one of the things about musical theatre I've found is that obviously you try and tell a lot more story than you would do in a pop song because you need to. Mm-hmm, sure. and so as a result, you get a hell of a lot of stuff. It's very busy, which instantly kind of kind of identifies the the music as sounding, uh, identifies the style of music where there's so much going on. It's da 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 Whereas, of course, pop songs yes. don't sound like that. And <laughs> that's maybe one of the things because... So there's literally so much content being pushed into a sort of a relatively short space because you're trying to tell as much story as you can. And that bounces again into identifying the style of musical theatre that perhaps people who who listen to pop music and rock music can't identify with Mm -hmm. because it's just so busy.
0: Yep. There's a completely different sound to it. Um, just structurally, which I find pop songs to be, I, I have a hard time listening to pop songs um, because they lack that structure sure. of, of a story. And I listen, to, or the lyrics uh, for pop songs drive me insane for lyrics because because they don't need to have the story or the cohesion that a musical theater does.
1: And you can't tell much of a story. No, no. so, so there's, there's really not much going on. Nope. that's the point. So somewhere in between the two. You see how that's interesting because your feeling is that sort of like your feeling, as you just expressed, Jean Paul, is that you find, a pop, you find pop music quite shallow because there's really not much going on. On the other hand, people who like pop songs are just like the chorus that comes in, I love you, <laughs> if, if you leave me, I will die. Yeah. Go on. Then, you know, they're happy with that. And yeah. if you start sort of like trying to cram too much story in, it's too much for me. I don't want it. Yeah. So you see how subjective that is, and maybe right there we've kind of zoned in on something style-wise that separates the two sort of fan bases. You know, people just don't don't like the sound of musical stuff because it's too much going on. Um, on the other hand, pop fans say. On the other hand, musical fans, musical fans, find pop music banal and sort of fairly empty in comparison.
0: Well, that's why I think musical theater and, and rock and uh, metal kind of l- are a nice mixture of each other. Because if you listen to a lot of metal songs, they, they tell a story and they, they're not afraid to go four, five, six minutes. You know, those classic songs from the 70s that go on for what, eight minutes long, oh. but they, they tell a story. And, and that's why I think it's a nice, they mesh so well together. That's why Tommy works. Uh, yes, yeah, so even
1: well. Pete Townsend even Pete Townsend said that the you know they were kind of when I looked at when I looked at sort of um you know the, the influence, I mean Bat Out of Hell obviously is another thing you oh, have yeah. to put on the table. And of course but then Bat Out of Hell, um as a as a story, I mean Voice of a Generation, without a doubt, I can honestly say that, you know, because of Lynn's story, um she's responsible for the story, the continuity mm-hmm. of the story. And it would stand up if you took every musical note out there. I think mm-hmm. it would make a great, move, a great movie. And it was just purely a, 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 like a, an action movie. Um, so, um, you know, there is a certain amount of, and I wouldn't level this about out of hell, or Tommy, but even Pete Townsend said, you know, the, the story of Tommy is quite abstract, really. Yeah. Uh, Well, I don't think a lot of people were absolutely I don't think I was absolutely sure what the story was I kind of got it I kind of got it he was a pinball wizard. and he was deaf dumb and blind and I get the I I know about sort of like he was abused by Uncle Ernie and Cousin Kevin Um, but in terms of the bigger picture of the story I was never quite sure I know (laughs) he becomes free at the end and he you know um, but it's it was all a bit abstract even at the time. Oh, for sure. You know, I was mainly influenced by the music and the fact that these songs tied together in any way, mm-hmm. you know, in any sense. You know, I love that, you know. Um, but once again Voice of a Generation I said is a you know, without a doubt, I mean is a is a story that I think you could just, you know, could become a I've often said to Lynn, you know, if this if this if this hits, you know, would you write the book? You know, because obviously there's a, there's only so much story once again you can tell in music in two hours. Well a book, of course, is much more comprehensive. Yeah. And she knows that. And she said, Well, she said, you know, she sort of kind of, you know, she said, yeah, I think I would, yeah, you know. <laughs> but then, I mean, you know, shouldn't probably shouldn't be saying that because I'm probably tying her down now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it would make a great book. Because yeah. obviously you can explore the backgrounds of characters that are in Voice of a Generation, that you just don't, do not have the time to explore sure. in a, in a two-hour musical production, you know. You just hit the main points, you know, the main points of the story. And it's strong, it's really strong. You know, it's the the eternal sort of love struggle of, you know, two unlikely characters in this this sort of really, really gritty, dark environment and dark time in history. Um, And, you know, for me, it has everything going in terms of the 70s. I think people have got a natural, there's a natural fascination with the Vietnam War, I think. Above and beyond them all, it was my era. One of the things that drove it for me, John Paul, was I'm I'm old enough, or I could have been called. I could have been called up for the Vietnam War had I not been had hatched in West
0: London, had I
1: hatched out in Ohio, or I could have actually been out there doing
0: it. I war. can't even imagine what that would have been like at that time to, to that, that fear of being drafted and, oh and going through a, a war that why? Right. So.
1: Well, the legacy of that war, I mean, I you know, spent a lot of time in the States and I got to know a lot of Vietnam vets. Mm-hmm. as Well, the legacy of that war left. So, you know, whatever your politic political beliefs are and so forth, since those, since that era of Vietnam, um, you know, from a Vietnam, from a 70s perspective, I mean, Voice of a Generation, it has all the sort of, like, the rallies of the sort of, like the Vietnam, the guys who came back, of course, the war was over in 1975, but, you know, the guys who sort of felt so let down, you know, by, you know, by the system and by politi- politicians and by their country, and... You know, what it must have felt like to not only have been thrust out there to do that and fight this war, but then come back to what they seemingly came back to. I mean, I can't even start to imagine. I can't even start to imagine what those guys went through. And having spoken to them and known them and had it described to me, um, I just thought, shit, that could have been me, you know. I'm, I'm of that age and I was listening to the same music. I was listening to The, do- the Doors. I was listening to Jimmy Hendrix and Janis Joplin. Except that I was 19 years old and I was sitting in, a, I was sitting in relative comfort in West London. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Those guys were, you know. yeah. What was the right thing? You know, that's another kind of underlying theme, you know. Those guys were demonised to a large extent for even going out there and fighting that war. Well, what's the right thing to do? Not fight for your country?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you're told your country needs you, what, did you know, to be demonized for it as well. And so it was all of those questions that Lynn and I sort of went, got into in depth. Um, And so I had a kind of personal link. I'm not a particularly patriotic or nationalist sort of person. It just so happens that I hatched in West London and the prime minister at that time was approached by uh, LBJ to um, you know, for the Brits to be involved in Vietnam, and he turned it down. <laughs> That's the only reason. That's the only reason I wasn't there. No. You know, I could have been there. I could have been there. Could have actually. And I think, shit, what was I doing when I was nineteen years old? Mm-hmm. And, what, and what were those guys in for? You know,
0: I'm so uh, glad I didn't have to deal with that. Just
1: well, to- the Canada thing. You're in Toronto. Yeah. you know all about the sort of like the the amnesty, you probably know all about the amnesty thing. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and that, that question again. So I think, what would I have done? What would I have done? You know, if I had the choice, I was an American, I was called up to go, you know, get, go into a fucking jungle and fight that war, or I could abscond over the border into Canada, yep. and a nice Canadian girl, and hide out <laughs> hide while everybody, let everybody else carry on with it, and not fight that war. You know, would that be the right thing to do? Yeah. And you know, who did the right thing at the end? The guys that did it, you know, the guys that demonized for it, the guys that didn't do it? Mm-hmm. The guys that refused to fight it? You know, what was the right thing? So on that, what was the right thing? There's a power of voice of the generation that's kind of, you know, focuses on who did the right thing at the end of the day in that situation?
0: Now that you've got it written everything, has it been produced anywhere? Has it gotten on its feet or Workshopped or anything like that?
1: Not at all, John Paul. We just literally, we've just finished it and, okay. and looked at each other and go, well, okay. I mean, I don't even read music. So one of the requirements, ah, yeah. of, the time, of course, is a score, which mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't personally do. I, you oh, know, I've never yeah, learned to do music. Um, you know, everything I've ever done, everything I've ever done since I was a kid has been my fault. I've never had any cause to read music because most of the people I was working with couldn't read music either. <laughs> so, so much of so us giving each other jobs, but nobody knows what the fuck they're doing anyway. So, you know, but I've taken comfort in the fact that some of the great sort of pop composers like Paul McCartney, he doesn't read music either. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, well, you know, I guess if I, I was a classical musician, it's a different story, but I wasn't, yeah. you know. And so it's just one of those, but that's one of the requirements a lot of the time is the piano score. And, of course, I'm kind of, you know, at that point, well, okay. <laughs> good. But we you know, literally just, we're just, just kicking off. So I think what we're going to do is put the whole thing on. Um, the idea is I think we're going to put the whole thing on YouTube, which is... Mm-hmm. I would never have done back in the day, but things have changed so much. It's yep. and this, the whole scene is so different now. Um, people say, you know, how do you make a living in music these days? And I, I honestly can't advise on that. It's never been easy. But nowadays, yeah. I think it's really, really tough.
0: I, I'm not sure. I think it might be even easy. It might be easier because... You know, when you started out, just to say in the 70s, the access to all the bands was either the radio or word of mouth. And, and that's it. Um, and you only had a limited uh, range of access where now, you know, Justin Bieber, for example, he comes from a small town, about an hour and a half from where I am. And he was discovered online by, by Usher because he put something on YouTube and you know exploded around the world the the accessibility to you know the rest of the world is so easy now I think it might be easier now to to get found and and yeah, noticed yeah but by, by
1: the same token would you not agree
0: that you know you still there's so
1: much stuff out there now and at one time you know for instance the technology has allowed anybody to sort of create music mm. up to the sort of level I actually read a an article by an American producer that said, "You know what you what you get with a sort of like a MacBook and a sort of couple like of little boxes for a thousand dollars now would have cost you know back in the day would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars if you that kind of sort of right like accessibility the possibilities of what you can do with that equipment. So, but of course, by by definite by naturally enough, of course, everybody uses it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so, what you've got to then have when I was young, if you had a demo, a professionally recorded demo, it also said something about you because somebody, probably not you, but somebody had actually paid for that to be done. Yeah. But when you turned up with your cassette and it sounded really good and it sounded like it was done in a place that cost $90 an hour, that was because it was, to make it sound like that, that was the only option you had. Mm-hmm. But now anybody can make it sound like that. Of course, everybody does. Yeah. And so the problem is not really that you know, all of that, all of the technology and so forth has allowed people this kind of platform to be able to speak. But of course, everybody does speak naturally. Yeah. Everybody does use it and speak. Exactly. And so where with the record companies and the publishers and so forth back in the day would, you know, for a musician, I can remember being broke, coming back from the stage. It's a long story. My, my ex-wife was attacked in Los Angeles. And yet we had to go back to the UK to have reconstruction surgery done on her face because she was damaged. Um, so we came back to the UK kind of about 1983, and John Paul, I was broke. I, mean, I was absolutely broke. Mm. I went into a publisher in London with four songs, uh, ideas for songs, rough ideas on a cassette. I came out the end of that day in about 1983 with a cheque for £10,000. Wow. And to be able to... The reason they could do that is because... In those days, when you had publishers and record companies and so forth, they had a lot of money to write off from what they'd earned the year before because obviously advances could be written off their, written off their tax bill. And so if you happened to be in the right place at the right time, <laughs> you could literally go home and feed your family. I don't know that that exists now because record companies and publishers as we knew them don't really exist anymore. Yeah.
0: I I think the problems of the music industry and getting discovered have just shifted. They're just different now. Uh Um, I think that better or worse. I don't know, but you know, back, back then, you know, there was less voices shouting out there, but the distance you couldn't reach as far where now, you know, you can reach, you can shout really loud and be heard, but there's just so many voices. So you have to pick your poison, which one, which is going to work best, right? Well, no, that's it, and that's
1: where the luck and that's where the connections comes in. I just, you know, yeah. we go full circle back to when you said, "Well, when I first talked to a chain of events that led me to playing at the top end of the business." I mean, and at the end of the day, you know, I'm absolutely honest about. I mean, I played with Aussie for seventeen years, but I'm a keyboard player. I mean, a lot of the time, some of the time I was on stage, some of the time I wasn't. I mean, keyboards aren't really synonymous with <laughs> metal. Yeah. I mean, people don't play air keyboards. and So if you're going to be a keyboard player, I mean, it's, it's a good gig to have and you get treated as, just as one of the band, mm-hmm. but you're not going to get the same sort of profile from it mm-hmm. as the guitarist or the drummer or the bass player because it's just not how it works. Yeah. If you've got a problem with that, then you're going to have a problem, you know, being in, a, in that field, in sort of the heavy metal field, um, as a keyboard player. You know, if you think you can compete, because you can't, you know, you just can't. I mean, if you think of, think of all the classic, I mean, and funnily enough, Voice of the Generation is not keyboard heavy, even though it's actually guitars. It's actually guitars. I had a friend of mine in Finland, and I got a few people that I could call on. And so um, it was nice to not have to play rock music, and not have to kind of find a place to fit keyboards into it because that's what I did. It was nice to be able to sort of bypass that and just sort of keep it authentic. And it sounds like it's guitar based, you know, even though I put the stuff together, it's, you know, it's based around the guitars and, and, you know, demonstrate that quite simply by saying, well, how many classic sort of, you know, rock songs are there that are really keyboard features. Yeah. Then how many how many keyboard players can you name? Rick White and Keith Emerson, how many guitarists? Yeah. <laughs> people don't as I said, people don't play air keyboards. They just And so there'll be the odd there'll be the odd tune I and mean, then you you'd probably be looking back to the likes of White a Shade of Shadow Pale or Protocol Arm, which you know featured the Hammond organ. Mm. In modern days you can look at jump by Van Halen, you know, which is a big keyboard thing. And even that was played by the guitarist. <laughs> so, there really aren't many. And so you've got to know you're up against that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I don't know how we got on to
0: that. <laughs> uh, I, I want to th- thank you for, for coming on today and, nice. and talking yeah, to me and, and introducing the world to, to this show. Um, now, before we go, I always ask three questions of my guests. Sure. All right. Now, there's no right or wrong answer. But there is a wrong answer. So be prepared. Okay. All right. Yep. So my first question I always ask, Weber or Sondheim for you? Um, I think Weber. Okay.
1: And why? I think because um, probably it's probably just my era. Mm-hmm. I love Sondheim. I love Sondheim as well. It's a, it's a tough question because... Yep. It's probably just my era and how I got in. I got introduced to musical theatre probably from Weber's work. On, you know, onwards from Jesus Christ Superstar, and so you know, literally, I was born into that era. You know, um, so in terms of influence and in terms of sort of like, the I mean, melody, um, I would say Andrew Lloyd Webber.
0: Okay. Yeah, and 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 it makes sense. You're both, uh, you know. It's just he's I'm just from, composer.
1: from that period, so I exactly. probably have more of a relationship with that, with his work. Is that the wrong answer?
0: <laughs> no, no, that one, that one usually gets split about 45, 55 for Sondheim, um, well, but I, but I found it depends on, you know, your background, where you're from, your age, um, whether you're, you're just a you know, a musician or more—it's it, very interesting. That's why I always ask that question.
1: But also be because I'm English, of course, as well.
0: Exactly, and, and that's I've found as well. The more, if the more uh, people from England I've talked to, it's um, Weber comes up a little higher usually. It's not—I don't think it's
1: prejudice. I think it's just exposure. Really, you know, I was so exposed to Weber's uh, Andrew Lloyd Weber's works. You know, Starlight mm-hmm. Express and and Cats and so forth. So yeah. You know, literally exposure and familiarity I'm more, to be honest i'm brutal. Mm-hmm. i'm a yep. more familiar with andrew lloyd Webber.
0: yep no there's no right or wrong for answer for that one that's more of an opinion so that's that's okay. okay all right so question number two what is the most theatrical thing you've seen while you were touring as a, a rock musician um, you know, for example, with *Spinal Tap*, they have the giant inflatable uh, <laughs> devil and that sort of thing. What is the most theatrical thing that you've seen?
1: Well, I, your- I think uh, I think there was a breakthrough. One of the most theatrical thing I've seen in was it uh, the, the exposure, and it it doesn't hopefully answers the question, but the <laughs> most influenced me, funnily enough, was the helicopter in *Miss Igon*.
0: Oh,
1: really? In the eighties, because I realized that sort of like they could do that because they didn't have to move that thing. I mean, with, with, with sort of staging, I mean, Aussie used to use a lot of sort of like, you know, quite epic staging and sort of like, you know, uh, forklifts and, and all, sorts of, all sorts of mechanics on stage, you know, for, for sort of just epic and sort of dynamic effects, uh, whatever you call them. But when I saw that helicopter landing on the stage in Drury Lane in London, that was the first time i actually thought geez you know that's sort of like the reason i can and my friend was actually in miss saigon mm. he was playing um simon bowman was playing chris he actually founded and he was an influence on my love of my growing love of sort of theater mm. musical theater and he said to me he so said they'd have to check that thing out every day but of course it was still static it was still in one theater and so to a certain extent, you could do more and keep it safe because you didn't have to move it every day in a truck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was a big influence on... and it, to, a certain, to a certain extent, it bypassed much of what I'd ever seen done in rock music, probably for the simple reason that a lot of stuff in rock music has to be moved. Yeah, And so in, in terms of safety and so forth, you probably couldn't pull something like that off as well as, you know, uh, a show that's taking place eight times a week in one theatre. Yeah, and so every day, you know, they have to come in and do safety checks because if that thing got out of hand, it's <laughs> got rotors running on the top. But It's yeah. probably one of the most... The other thing is probably the 18-inch Stonehenge Spinal Tap, I suppose. Yeah. You, know, you can't really top that for sort of like... <laughs> And you know, as an interesting aside, that that idea was based on a was based on Black Sabbath, who had, had a Stonehenge bill, but the joke was it was too big; it wouldn't go in anywhere. So a lot, of, a lot of a lot of a lot of, happened in the Spinal Tap movie do have a kind of like a, a background in background in truth. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, of course, that wouldn't have been funny because it wouldn't have come in. So all they did was reversed it. I made oh, yeah. it too <laughs> nice in, in terms of, is does that in terms of spectacle I think you know and it wasn't actually rock music it was Miss Saigon but I think that yeah. like, sort of like really you know made me think gee you know that takes some beating in in rock and roll terms you know
0: cool all right so question number three and this might be the most important one uh audience members eating food in the theater yes or no Hudson um I suppose it depends what
1: sort of food not it sort of like just bringing in calories and uh, I, don't know, um, I never really i didn't even know I wasn't even aware that people did is that a thing is that actually a thing you know
0: uh it's starting to unfortunately um yeah people will bring food uh, like candies and stuff like that, but I've been hearing stories doing the interviews. People are bringing in lunches into the theater and eating well. i like, this is ridiculous. But, I wouldn't have thought. I wouldn't have
1: thought. I mean, I, you know, I'm definitely, I'm definitely old school in terms of sort of like everybody filming the show. <laughs> I
0: mean,
1: like that that I think is just crazy. I mean, yeah. it's, I mean. Well, that's not really answering your question, but I mean, it doesn't put me in mind of in the eighties. If you got caught with any kind of recording device at uh, a sort of a show, I mean, you would just, you'd be thrown out. Now you couldn't police that. Now I mean, everybody for some reason has a has a sort of like an insatiable urge to sort of own this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. There's probably a deep psychological reason behind it. I don't know. I don't know. But food, I, I I would think. Um, I would think you know, provided you're not bothering anybody, I don't really see that it matters. I mean, where do you draw the line between? You've always, I mean, everybody's always had candy and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and provided you're not making a terrible racket unwrapping stuff in the middle of a really poignant love scene. <laughs> you
0: but, know? but they always do for some reason, and I don't know why. They always decide to eat candy during the love scenes. <laughs> so
1: they go out I'm in the middle of the sort of like the most touching, moving love scene. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's close enough to the right answer. I'll take it.
1: <laughs> what, what, what is the right answer?
0: Uh, well, for me, it's no. <laughs> no food in the theatre because, A, it interrupts the, you know, it's just noisy and, B, and more importantly for me, people leave their garbage on the floor oh, every yeah. time. And it what, just drives me insane. Do
1: it, do you? you don't really need to. I mean, you know, you could work your day around yeah. it so that, you kind of, so that you're kind of fed before yeah. you the show. You would you know, think. But. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like if you're allowed to do anything, you could bring in your sort of like, bring in your like sort of sun lamp and so forth. So, mm-hmm. you know, where do you draw the line in terms of, in terms of sort of like personal sort of like liberation and what people can and can't do? So, exactly, there has to be a certain, has to be a certain level of, um, has to be a certain level of, sort of restraint. I think.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm more the fact, just don't do it. Eat I wouldn't before, eat after. Just,
1: yeah. I mean, I wouldn't me. do it. I'd, I'd focus on the show and then afterwards probably focus on the food.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So you know what you're talking about. <laughs> wouldn't need both at the same time. <laughs> well, Don, those are my three questions. And uh, you, you did great. So thank you. Okay. <laughs> so, so, um, you'll have to keep us informed if, if uh, voice of generation gets any type of reading or stage reading or anything like that, because we will share the hell out of it with all our uh, listeners and on our social media and everything like
1: that. Oh, that's brilliant. I really appreciate And I really appreciate, you know, I really appreciate your time and, you know, and, and, and getting back to me, you know, to be honest, I said to you, I did say something, Twitter, I so, said, you know, it's probably the way I'm doing it, but I mean, my progress so slow, and I honestly thought, and that was one of the questions, I honestly thought, I, I do have a bit of a background, albeit in the rock and roll scene, um, but, you know, be honest, I, don't, I haven't had much of a response, you know, be <laughs>
0: <with the voice>. honest. <laughs> well, just take your advice from your younger self, just keep going and, you know, make that phone call. <laughs> just keep making those phone calls because something good will happen. Sure, absolutely. Awesome. Well, th- again, thank you so much, John, and uh, good luck with everything. And I hopefully will talk to you again when we're speaking
1: to speak you again.
0: Awesome. All right. We have just been speaking with John Sinclair, the composer lyricist of the musical Voice of a Generation. Tune in next week as we'll be talking with somebody new about their love and life and passion that is musical theatre. As always, I am your host, Jean-Paul Jovanoff. You are listening to Be Our Guest here on Musical Theatre Radio. And I'll see you when I see you.